We can talk about anything you want This is episode Snippets 2. These Snippets episodes are uh, two lapel mics, this DJI mic system that I really like. And we just clip them to people and we have these informal conversations uh, unstructured while doing other things. So there's lots of background noise. In this case, I was washing dishes and whatnot. Uh, So in this episode, uh, Stephanie talks about her uh, early ADHD diagnosis, depression issues, and going to various megachurches and non-megachurches. And how uh, religion was formative in her early life and not in her upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. So if you like this, great. If you don't, you can go into the feed and skip all the episodes that are snippets and then a number. Because those are unstructured, heavy background noise sorts of episodes. Hope you enjoy. Testies. Testies. One, two, three. Three testies? No, that's not right. So uh, so start the ADHD story. So oh. he, he was like so he had special training. Yeah, so um like I was saying I grew up nominally Lutheran. We had a little bit of religious education when I was growing up, but religion wasn't a huge part of my household, at, you know, when I was a child and you know, we'd say grace before dinner at like holiday meals, so like Easter, Christmas, etc. Like religious holiday meals, we would say grace, but we wouldn't really have a, there wasn't a lot of religious practice in my home as a kid, and we didn't really attend church consistently. Um, And so I didn't really internalize a lot of it, and eventually I was, you know, a fairly aggressive agnostic like I don't know and neither do you and um, so I had this weird evangelical Christian phase that I kind of doubt looking back at it because I had I was I was married at the time and I also had a crush on my um, mentor slash co-worker at the counseling agency I was interning at and, uh, you know, we hit it off because, like, he his specialty was ADHD, and, you know, we he worked late, and so did I. And so I ended up doing a lot of um, shadowing sessions with him, and go with, and we'd go with together to his clients' homes because we did in, in-home therapy as part of our services. And so there was lots of opportunity for us to talk, and he... We discovered we had a lot of things in common in the way that we thought and did things, and he suggested that I get assessed for ADHD. He's like, I think you might you might have ADHD. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. But um, So how, how old were you at this point? Mm, let's see. This was when I was an intern, so this would have been when I was like 31. Yeah. Or 30. Um, and he was... Were you, so at that at thirty one, you hadn't been diagnosed with anything. You were on no meds at all for anything. Correct. Yeah, I hadn't been diagnosed with ADHD. I had been taking antidepressants off and on for ten years at that point. So at so at twenty one, the you knew that hey this this isn't right, and some doctor told you that antidepressants would because I'm. I'm probably on the verge of, hey, you know, I should probably be on antidepressants. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm 40,000 years old. So um, for me, so if you wouldn't mind describing, like at 21, what is the sequence of events that learn, leads you to be on antidepressants for the first time? Well, I think I was just having a, a routine um, checkup sort of thing with my GP. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a psychiatrist that did it. Um, I, but I brought up my mental health because around that time I was in school studying psychology. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a physician heal thyself sort of crossed with 
med student syndrome where I was seeing myself in different diagnoses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but depression and anxiety seem to fit pretty well. Not so much anxiety, though, looking back at it. It was mostly depression, and whatever anxiety was there was ADHD. Um, so, yeah, I, was, I had been on antidepressants off and on since I was 21 or 22, I'd say. You're, you're saying your GP gave you antidepressants out of the blue. But, no, I mean, not, not, not out of the blue, but... No, I discussed my concerns about my mental health with my physician. Your, your GP. And, yeah, with yeah. my GP. And uh, they offered to try me on something. And... I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Because yeah. I, I was having unshakable depressive like bouts of depression yeah i was 43 in for a physical the first time that my gp's like have you ever thought about anti-depression meds and i didn't think gps did that this is i'm Mm -hmm. I'm 43 mind you i've gone decades with probably mild depression and the first time it ever happened that a gp ever said to me oh have you thought about (laughs) getting on antidepressants I was surprised because I didn't think GPs did that. I think you had to go to a psychiatrist. Yeah, Uh, yeah, no, GPs are trained to screen uh, screen for and prescribe for depression. Um, So that's a pro tip for anybody who might be listening. If you cannot get into a psychiatrist but you have a GP, um, you may want to bring it up at your next appointment with your GP or make an appointment with your GP to discuss your um, mental health concerns because they are able to prescribe you medications. It's not a, it's not the only thing you should do because they're not specialists with that, but they can definitely give you something to try to get started while you wait for a psychiatrist. Because it's really hard to get in with a psychiatrist, especially now, but it's always been kind of difficult to get in with a psychiatrist. Is it? Yeah. So, you know, like the psychiatrist I went, that I go to currently, I had to wait three months for my initial appointment. So you, you went and saw my shrink one time, right? She's not a shrink. She's a counselor. There's a bit of a difference. Right, but she works with a group and whatever the shrink signs the meds or whatever yeah i couldn't really i didn't really click with her um it was and it was for an interesting and, and weird reason but it makes sense for me is because when I was talking about my past employment with child uh, with child protective services, she showed empathy to me, but framed it as, "Wow, that must have been hard for you to see all these piece of shit parents." So that's the fastest way to lose me as an ally is bad mouthing the parents that I worked with, because most of them were there because of shitty circumstances in their own life that were, you know, to varying degrees, but mostly beyond their control. Like, we were just taking kids away from parents because of poverty issues. And so I very, very seldom ran into what I would consider a bad parent. And so for her to jump to that conclusion, like, yeah, you don't under, like, we're not going to get along. You don't understand where I'm coming from with this. You're not sympathize with my, you know, views about systemic oppression and uh, all of that. I'm going to spend an awful lot of time educating you about how things actually are rather than talking about my own uh, issues because they were so central to, um, like, my mental health struggles at that time because I think I was working at the state at that time. So isn't the, 
isn't she trying to jump to whatever's painful for you? I mean, isn't she trying to figure out? Because at the end of the day, it's it's her job to try to help you. She can't fix the well, see, system. And, and this was during, like, the first or second session, like, when you were still going over biopsychosocial history. Um, and so if you lose me there, we're not going to really make a lot of progress. <clears throat> That, and I think that she was trying to, like, she was using methods that work for people that don't work for me. Probably because I understand now that I am probably, to some degree, autistic. And so, psychological techniques and, like, counseling techniques that work on Many other people don't always work on me. And I'm also a very difficult uh, therapy client because I'm so good at masking my feelings and so reluctant to let my guard down that I never get past just like staffing myself and talking about myself to my counselor as if I am a case instead of I am the client or the patient. So, uh, yeah, she and I, we didn't vibe. Um, I have not been consistent with therapy because therapy is difficult to get time off for. It's expensive. And with a few exceptions, I did have a therapist that I saw consistently that I really liked that helped me through my um, feelings about my divorce um, and, like, getting myself mentally prepared for that popping the reverse question, you know. Um, But, yeah, it's been pretty uncommon. But I've seen a lot of good psychiatrists, too. And, anywho, yeah. So I I went to my GP first for uh, for, um, depression meds. And uh, so I'd been on depression meds every now and like. Off and on, usually seasonally, because I have really bad seasonal depression. Um, So I'd go on them in the winter and then go off them in the summer when I felt better. And then back on them in the winter. And that's like, that's pretty common and normal to have happen. Um, But yeah, Jim was like, you know, maybe you've got ADHD. And I'm like, that's an interesting thought. I didn't really act on it until a few years later, because I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I can handle it. I've managed this far. I had, even if I do have ADHD, I, you know, I did well in school. I seem to be holding it together. Never mind the fact that I was like cruising it at like a hundred miles an hour towards a brick wall of burnout. I wasn't burnt out yet. Um, but yeah, I, Jim was an ADHD specialist. And so like he and he was really interesting and he was also an evangelical christian and so we'd have these long interesting discussions about religion and spirituality and he was the first religious person i had met who was willing to listen to me talk about disbelief respectfully and not try to interject and not try to like jump down my throat about religion. Like, we actually had a, like, good intellectual deep conversations about the nature of reality and the existence or non-existence of God and whether that's even important to the way that you live your life as a human being, you know, um, and all of that stuff. And eventually I got close enough to him that I agreed to do a little bit of looking into his side and consider his beliefs and um, like listen to him talk about his beliefs and do a little bit of Bible reading and I read the Bible I read the Gospels and I'm like I like this Jesus guy 
And so I'm like, hey, I like this Jesus guy, Jim. Was this your end to that mega church you were going to? Yeah, it was the end of my, my mega church that I went to. Uh, it was Trinity Interdenominational at the time, and now it's LifeGate, and they are something else, man, I tell you what. <laughs> um, it, was, it was an interesting experience being involved with the evangelical church. It definitely gave me a lot of perspective and information on which to base my opinions about religious people. Um, but the problem I kept having was I kept acting sincere and believing everybody else around me was sincere about what they believed. And I thought that the thing that we believed was we were helping people and that we should live a Christ-like life and we should, you know, put others before us and, like, live and love sacrificially and help the needy and the poor and blah, blah, blah. You know, the stuff that Jesus wanted you to do and be like, you know, be kind and respectful to sex workers and, you know, love the homeless and, you know, that that you do for the least of me, you know, that kind of thing. And that was the takeaway that I got because I read the Bible. That's how I got started with Christianity is that I read the, the, the Gospels. I read the stuff about Jesus and I'm like, yeah, this Jesus cat's kind of cool. I, I like him. Like, this is exa- I, I can see wanting to live like this guy. And then I got into a church, and I realized that is not at all how they were living. In that church. In that way. church. Yeah. And, you know, they had, like, a bookstore inside the church and a coffee shop inside the church and a huge sanctuary with, a, like, a massive rock band and beautiful audiovisual stuff during their uh, ceremonies. And the guy preaching, and I must have gone during, like, a, a sermon series that was, you know, aligned with what I was beginning to believe that Christians thought. So I'm like, yeah yeah, this is cool. I can keep doing this. And like, these people are really nice. And like, I like this, this pastor that they've got on, like, they called it like the, the new finders club or something like that. Or like, it was like a club for new, new Christians and like questioning people. Um, but you had been Lutheran ostensibly. Yeah. But not, not really well educated about religion or about being Lutheran. Like, we were culturally Lutheran. Um, And so this was, like, the first time I'd been super involved with a church that was actually, like, interested in doing stuff besides just going to church on Sunday. Because that was, like, the sole thing that you did if you were a religious Lutheran, is you just, like, you went to church on Sunday. And... Maybe you tithed. I didn't even know what tithing was until I started going to this mega church. And it was a big deal because, you know, the rock band's not going to pay themselves. Um, so, had, so in my parents' church, they passed the plate every Sunday. So you couldn't, you couldn't go there and not notice tithing in operation. Oh no! I mean, there's always an oper- there's always an offering plate. That's always been a feature of church. Yeah, is passing the plate. Yeah, but look at how pretty that is when it's wet. Yeah, that is nice. Um, but it, the expectation wasn't ten percent of your income. The expectation was maybe a five dollar bill if you're feeling generous, or you give each one of your kids a dollar to put into the collection plate so they don't feel left out. It was not 10% of your income direct, uh, direct debited from your bank account every month on the same day of the month. Like, you paid, your, you paid a bill to the church that was 10% of your income. And if you weren't doing that, your, uh, your faith and your loyalty and your dedication was questioned. 
Lamar. And like I couldn't justify spending 10% of my income because I wasn't because uh, I was working, but my husband was not. And that was another source of friction because, you know, Matt wanted absolutely nothing to do with the church. And I understand why, because his grandfather and grandmother were incredibly strict, very, very religious evangelical Christians. And then his mom's side of the family were very strict very religious Jehovah's Witnesses. So he wanted nothing to do with the church. And I'm like, I wasn't going to force him because you couldn't make Matt Hardesty do shit that he didn't want to (laughs) do. Like, if he doesn't want to do it, he's just not going to fucking do it. And that was a big source of friction for us. But in this regard, I'm like, I'm not going to force him to come to church. I'm not going to make a whole bunch of waves about it at home. This is a me thing, not a him thing. And the whole church was seeming to make it a an us thing and make it my responsibility to like pray for him and convert him and submit to him, even though he wasn't a God fearing man. And like, so he's, he's not on the program and yet he still has more power over you. Correct. (laughs) That's crazy. Correct. He was not on the program. He was not at all involved. He was actually, uh, against it. And he still, was of my household and who I was to be subordinate to. It's like I always say, baby. Even though I was working and supporting the both of us. But you don't have cock and balls. And that is what God determines to be the uh, important thing. It says so right in the Bible. If If he wanted me to be in charge, he would have given me a plug and not a port. You know? You know. But... Yeah, so it was, there was all sorts of that. You have some kind of purpose in the church. I just can't remember what it is. Well, obviously my, my purpose wasn't to <laughs> lead. My purpose wasn't to, you know, be a singular woman in the church doing her thing, enjoying, enjoying her experience in the church and, you know, getting like improving in her relationship with God and getting closer to Jesus, you know, like it should have been just about me and my own spirituality and my own personal development and all of that. And then, um, they made it all about submissive womanhood and, you know, pray, being a prayer warrior and praying for your husband and, Submitting to your husband, even if he's, you know, not godly, because your spirit of submission will in, will encourage him to step up and lead. And I'm like, no, my spirit of submission will just cause nothing to get done, because he doesn't do anything. This is because you don't understand, because you don't have the dangly bits. I know. You're I know that part of the brain comes with the dangly bits, and so obviously I'm... I am deficient. Certain amount of reasoning that you're not just not capable of. It's not your fault. I know. I know. You but, you know, backbone. try telling me that as a prideful woman. <laughs> I am. I'm trying to tell you that. I know. <laughs> and am I listening? No, because I'm a prideful woman and I don't submit to men like that. I don't submit unless there's some previous discussions about consents and safe words and boundaries and, you know, yes and no lists and maybe lists and, you know. What does it for you? Like that, I'm interested in that kind of submission. The other kind of submission, I'm not that terribly interested in. So my my parents' church was also a 10% guideline, but it was a guideline. And if you couldn't afford it, you couldn't afford it. And you weren't going to be thought down upon at all. Well, and I thought the whole notion of like 10% tithing or, you know, giving within your your ability in 10% if you can was partly to take care of and look after the people who can't afford to do that. Or at least, you know, give them a little bit of breathing room so that they can give what they, what they can. I mean, there's a whole biblical parallel, uh, par- parable about that with the widow's might. Like, the, the, the Pharisee comes in to the temple and makes a big fucking deal about this huge donation he's dropping in the donation box and you know then then a a widow comes in after him and drops in two coins 
all that she had that she could give without, you know, endangering herself. Oh, I thought it was more than she could do without endangering herself. Well, I thought I think that's religious spin. Like she gave all that she could. Oh, I thought the biblical story was that some rich dude gave a shitload of money and some poor woman gave a pittance. And somebody said, look at that, it's insulting to get such little money. And mm-hmm. Jesus, or whoever the hell it was. It was. Was it, was it Jesus? Yeah, I think it was Jesus. Anyway. But yeah, well, like, she... The point being, like, her small donation was way more meaningful than that big donation from some rich yeah. bastard. Yeah, that, exactly. But it was that a made a huge deal about it. Powerful. And, you know, was giving a bunch of money to the religious organization for clout and esteem and thinking that he can buy his way into heaven and or buy his way into God's good graces. Which you can at the megachurch. Apparently. And that's why I let that ultimately ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back. Or actually it wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was the thing the straw that critically wounded the camel. Um Almost push the camel over the edge. I don't know. That metaphor doesn't work very well. But um, did I tell you how I got called into the principal's office, basically, at this church? Yeah. Yeah, so... For your attitude? Yeah, because I... was Questioning? They were doing a, a series on tithing, and I'm like, at this point, I'd heard mixed conversations about the prosperity, prosperity gospel, because... I've always been kind of anti-capitalist and I'd been hearing some religious uh, writers and leaders really railing against the prosperity gospel as something that you can avoid, that you should avoid and that, you know, God is not a slot machine that you just keep pumping quarters into hoping for a reward. Um, So, you know, I was... I was delving deep into like red letter Christians, like ones that were Jesus people, right? I was not really going for prosperity gospel because it seemed superstitious to me. And it also seemed counter to the spirit of the religion. And like it seemed spiritually dangerous to me. So I didn't want to deal with it. But this church apparently was preaching the prosperity gospel just stealth and they, stealth yeah in a big ass church in a big ass church that doesn't well sound they didn't stealth. they didn't come out with it with their whole chest during their um big meetings like during their sunday services they didn't focus on that because they wanted butts in the seats and they knew that the whole prosperity gospel slash tithing conversation would turn people off so like they tried to be very friendly to the casual religion religious seeker. But that's the whole. That's their whole business model, though. They can't. They they. I mean, you got to throw out the people who aren't going to give the ten percent because. Right, but see, that's the whole thing. They get you in the door with with the good news, and then they send you a bill. Yeah, my my recollection of my parents' church in Sioux City was that there was one uh, very wealthy, compared to most people, uh, doctor. And his 10% or whatever he gave was a huge Which is amount, yeah. percentage of the budget of the entire congregation. Right. Well, yeah, you have one, one or two really wealthy people, and they're probably giving the church, if they're tithing, they're probably giving the church, you know, 50 grand a year or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, everything seemed to be going well. And I had like a little prayer group and I had a group of friends that were kind of like my fellow outcasts, former atheists. I had, uh, friends from the church that were former Satanists, like literal Satanists. Where was this? At LifeGate at this mega church. That Inside I LifeGate? They were former, former Satanists? they were former Satanists. Wow. I've never met an actual former Satanist. In and they were life. neat until they decided that I was not t- following the party line 
the former Satanist was giving you shit about conformity? <laughs> That's yes. ironic. I guess he's extremely former. Yeah, no, yeah. Her her name was Wren, and I really liked her, and I hung out with her a lot, and she was like my church friend, and it was cool because I had all these, all these people had to have like long, intimate conversations with, and this is like how I make friends is having long, intimate conversations with people about big ideas, and so it was perfect for me. I thought because I was having these ideas with people who I thought were people that enjoy free discourse and who would not judge me for my doubts and who would not judge me for um, raising counter arguments in the spirit of good faith. You know, like I'm, I wasn't trolling them. I was expressing my doubts as a former atheist who did not grow up with religion, who wanted to understand and who wanted to do the, who wanted to be sincere and who wanted to feel something. And the whole time I went to that church, I wanted so badly just to feel something. I wanted to feel what these other people around me seemed to be feeling. Like connectedness with God? Yeah. And like it was a charismatic church, so there was like tongue speaking and, and stuff like that. And like charismatic, like conversation about charismatic gifts. And all of these things that I'm like, is there something fundamentally wrong with me? Because I'm, I'm trying my hardest to feel this type of like swelling emotion or, you know, feel full of God or feel like overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord or, you know, all of that. And the few times where I would like, get up and talk about my experience and share with the group because that's also what I do. You put me in a situation that resembles a classroom and I'm going to be contributing to the conversation. If you put me in discussion class, like a discussion group, I'm going to talk and I'm going to try to make the conversation interesting and I'm going to try to get my questions answered or you know, at least have a good conversation and a good you know, exchange of ideas. And I got accused of, like, attention-seeking and, like, faking it or maybe not being sincere. Like, I at once got accused of faking it and trying to do these things for attention when I was actually being genuine and also not quite being saved. Like, I never quite felt secure in the idea that I had been, quote-unquote, saved, even though I had, you know, did the whole altar call thing and, you know, said the whole, I accept Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Did they baptize you? I got baptized. I got dunked. At the megachurch? At the megachurch. I was... I was baptized as an infant as a Lutheran because that's what we did. But at the megachurch, I got dunked as an adult. So I was, ba- I was double dipped. And you were still asking questions? And I was still asking <laughs> questions. And this would, th- they, they led me to believe that there was something wrong with me and wrong with my faith and wrong with my soul because I had s- seemingly accepted these things that they were teaching and that everybody else around me seemed to believe while, but I still questioned it and that should have taken care of it. Like you got saved, you got dunked, you go to church three times a week, you're reading your Bible, you're spending hours in prayer on, the, on your porch because you can't do it around your husband because he makes fun of you. You're, you know, putting a lot on the line when it comes to your marital happiness and trying your level best to get your husband to come to church with you. And he, once, once when I got baptized, he came. That was good. Yeah, I appreciate that. But 
I wasn't getting it and I wasn't fitting in and I was having like almost traumatic flashbacks to elementary school and high school where, you know, like, cause you walk in, if you walk into a big like ladies group where there's discussion tables and like, it's not because this church was so big that you had to break up the ladies Bible study into multiple tables. And so every time I'd walk into a situation like that, it felt like walking into the lunchroom, which was so uh, anxious of an activity when I was a kid, like just being around a, a group of my peers and having to find a place to sit was so stressful and trying to make these people like me and trying to fit in with these people when I just could not fit in with these people, no matter how hard I tried because I was being sincere and I thought I was doing Christianity the way that the Bible said it should be done and the way that I still believe that it should be done. Like, you know, if you're going to be Christian, you should follow socialist brown hippie Jesus who hung out with prostitutes and the homeless and said, you know, give away all of your earthly possessions and follow me and look after your fellow man. Like, that's the Jesus I like. That's the Jesus they said that they were worshiping. That was not the Jesus that they were worshiping. They were were. They were worshiping Republican prosperity Jesus. Follow me to the megachurch is what Jesus said. Follow me to the megachurch. Give me 10% of your income. Make sure you buy a book on the way out the door. And uh, come back on Wednesday because we're having a Bible study. And make sure you bring a, bring a dish for the group. And um, so did they we'll actually, be taking donations. Did they actually help any poor people? Did they ever do anything? They had a care ministry. That was on paper, supposedly there to help people. However, I knew at least a few people who actually tried to make use of the care ministry, and it was more tight-fisted than the government yeah. with welfare. And there, it was meager, and they did not come out of the woodwork to help people. Well, that's because, you know, they only have 10%. Because those who don't work shouldn't eat, right? That's what Paul said. In the Bible? Yeah, actually. It's in one of the letters. Rude. If you don't work or if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. He was writing I think it was in Corinthians or something like that. Um so yeah, they had this like really punitive materialistic idea. And then it finally came to a head when they were doing a series on giving and tithing and I'm like oh boy here we go and I went into it with like all intentions to take it seriously and to like be sincere about it and listen to what the preacher has to say and read the related scripture having to do with tithing and with you know the what the bible says about money and they were doing a, uh, as part of their t- series on tithing, they were introducing this concept of like, you throw your money into the bucket and God will provide for you, basically. Like we have these three buckets and we're asking you to go above and beyond and donate to these three different projects that we're doing to spread the gospel and like and then you know the idea being god will reward your faithfulness in in with an asterisk monetarily you know that was the unspoken part god will reward your faithfulness in this life and the three buckets were um advertising flat screen TVs in the various uh, 
like throughout the church, like new flat screen t TVs and improvements on the building throughout the church, um, like in the fellowship halls and the hallways, because this church is massive. It's got a church school attached to it too. Um, or a new soundboard for the music ministry. Now, looking at those three different options, I'm like, I honestly see how advertising, like an advertise, and I brought this up during our like co-ed family, they called them a family life group. It was like the middle-aged people or the young adults, except that I didn't fit in with any of those people because I didn't have a, I didn't have children. I didn't, my husband didn't come to church with me and I didn't have children. And so I could not relate. But that's besides the point here. I was in this family life group with people that were supposedly at my stage of life and brought up the fact that while, like, I'm questioning the motivation here because while I can see that putting money towards advertising makes sense to me, because if the point is to tell people about the Word of God, and the way you do that is get them into your church so you can tell them about the Word of God, God, advertising makes sense, right? But they also have to be impressed when they get there with the big screen TVs. Well, see... And the soundboard. The soundboard even made sense to me. Like, and I, you know, because they had a strong music ministry that actually produced records and, like got onto the radio and in other markets besides Omaha and you know they were a good music ministry with a lot of talent and they wrote original songs and they were all pretty good and that's another way to spread the gospel right is to sing and to like make music that's always been a way to do it in modern history anyhow and even before but the flat screen TVs throughout the entire church and all like the material improvements, I'm like, I don't understand how it is spreading the gospel to buy new furniture for our own for our own house. Yeah, I don't. Anytime I see opulence attached to religion. It's a turnoff. Yeah. It, I kind of run away. To me, that's gross. Like the you're you say you're one thing and then clearly you're not doing that thing. Right. So why would I have any attraction to this at all right so i i don't know how people do it i don't know how people see oh the church built this lovely thing and not think well why didn't that money go to people who need it well so, so i kind of understand using your wealth to fund artists for your works and projects like if you if you walk into the building and there's a bunch of like hand-blown chandelier stuff because that's how that person makes their living and therefore that's how they contribute to the messaging of God or whatever is they right. donate in kind, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's cool. But I don't understand or, why. Or, or Dale Cahooley uh, goes to your church and gave you a massive one of his glass-blown sculptures as, as a thank you or as like a contribution to his church that that's one thing but yeah, and churches try to get all that shit donated anyway so right but you know 87 big screen yeah i don't if i wasn't seeing it the the i mean <laughs> and and me as a person who has you know working class sensibilities who is afraid of opulence and religion and does not believe that religion that money has a place in religion had a big problem with this and it didn't cause like a fight or anything like I left Bible study thinking oh okay that's that's an interesting discussion I kind of see what they're saying but I still don't quite agree and then like I get a call to come in to talk to one of the pastors and I get there and I'm basically pulled into this pastor's office with his wife because they don't want a male pastor meeting alone with a woman which Knowing what we know about churches now, obviously that makes sense because churches are full of predators. Um, but I get in there and basically they tell me that I need to keep my doubts to myself and shut up and submit. 
Yep. Yeah, there's a whole arc in Game of Thrones about the opulence of the crown and the uh, servants of the uh, gods who wear rags everywhere and serve the poor, and that's all they do, and how uh, all of their opulence is the opposite of godliness. And, right. Uh, so that's very interesting. Meanwhile, they're doing that in a massive sept, which has cost you know ten million magic dollars to uh, to generate. So the opulence is everywhere, and yet the priest, the head sparrow, he's called the head the head sparrow. Is it's like poverty rags. theater because you have these priests, like in the Catholic Church, that take vows of poverty, but you have these massive troves of wealth that the Catholic Church has from centuries of patronage and uh you know donations and you know taking tithes but also theft and destruction of other people's cultures they end up you know war they have like they've done horrible horrible things to get these beautiful beautiful things and but yeah after that meeting with that pastor and and his wife I like people started treating me differently at the church and that was when I started being accused of like faking it or doing things for attention and also at the same time you know not trying hard enough and not being sincere and my ex-satanist friend broke up with me basically told me that I was not a you know, a godly person for her, like I was not good for her spiritual health to be around. And I eventually like fell off of that church and just quit going and sought out a different church. And I started going to Coram Deo, which I think they have a building now. But at the time they met at Westside Middle School in their auditorium on Sundays. And so I really, really liked that this church didn't have any building at all. They had no building of their own. They met in a space that was provided by the community while it, because it was not in use on Sundays. And their, you know, midweek stuff took place at people's homes. So it was like, it was very... Uh, early church to me like it felt it felt very like acts two, like early christian church where they they did their group stuff in people's homes every week and that was like an important part and then they just met where they could on sundays and they also had a really good band and they had a really really interesting preacher that had a really academic way of doing things that I enjoyed. And I think the whole thing was, is like modern church was just like school and then a concert to me because they had these really, really good music ministries. And the one at Coram Deo was very like Mumford and Sons, hipster, you know, bearded guys with banjos sort of thing, which like all the, like at, at the very cutting edge of style at the time. And so they were very stylish and very young and, um, you know, they seemed to be cool and, like, kind of progressive. But the longer I went to that church, the more they started showing their ass. And the thing that did it for me was um, they did, and at the time I was working in child services. So I was, like, dealing with... Uh, you know, child abuse and, you know, child development and discipline and, you know, parenting skills and things like that. And so they were holding a, a women's, a, of course it was women's, they were holding a women's seminar on childhood discipline or like, you know, ch child rearing. And I'm like, okay, this, I'd like to know what my church believes about that. And they were teaching to train up a child. I don't know if you've heard of that book, 
But if you want to be really angry, go look it up. Train so, up a child. To train up a mean? child. Just to make them in the next generation of tithers? No, no basically, basically it was... It was taking that spare the rod, spoil the child thing completely out of context and to the extreme. Because, you know, when they're talking about the rod in the Old Testament, when they're talking about sparing the rod, the shepherd doesn't strike his sheep with the rod. He uses the rod to nudge them and guide them to where they need to go. That's the rod that they're talking about. But a lot of people have taken that to mean you beat your children. And basically, this was the takeaway from this seminar. They tried to, you know, soften it up and given it, you know, fluffy, caring, you know, loving language, but they were advocating, like, using a small switch to swat your baby's hand when he was reaching for something he shouldn't. Or, you know, the correct number of blows to give your eight-year-old for transgression and how you handle it afterwards and, you know, what you do to, you know, reconnect with your child after you've beaten them. And after that, I kind of just petered out again. I, I was not interested, really. Like, I kept trying to go. For a little while after that, but I couldn't look at these people the same way. Because they were all like really cool, hip, seemingly forward thinking, seemingly red letter Jesus following Christians. I don't know what red letter means. Uh, sir, okay, so in certain, in many different printings of the Bible, Jesus' words are in red so that uh, you know what he said. Gotcha. And so when you hear about a red-letter Christian, those are Christians who are like, I follow what Jesus said and that's it. Like, a lot of them don't even follow what's in the letters like, at, or other books of the Bible. But, yeah, I thought these people were Christians like I wanted to be a Christian and they were not. And they were just... Life gate in skinny jeans. They were just the same exact kind of people with better clothes and, you know, cooler music. And, and, and a pastor with a lot of charisma. And so this that, is after you left LifeGate, the Yeah, this was the second church I went to after. Another megachurch or... No, it was a small. It was a small church that wasn't mega at all. It oh, didn't even have its own building. So where'd you meet? Huh? Where did you meet then? If you didn't have a building, West Side Middle School. Huh. All right, babe. I gotta vape because I'm addicted to nicotine, and I gotta get ready to go downtown. Hmm. But. Thank you for the recap. I appreciate it. I don't understand this cat. So the cat is flopped in front of me mm-hmm. like he wants me to interact with him. And then every time I interact with him, I'm doing it wrong. Or he just wants to play with me. I don't know. I don't know. It looks like he likes it to me. That looks like a pretty contented kitty. And he's going to roll over to... That means he likes you. He's content enough to flop in front of you. Content enough to bite me. That means he loves you. <laughs> Little love bites. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Alfie. You just stay away from, stay away from the soft cat belly. It's a trap. 